Genesis 23. Genesis chapter 23. We've reached this evening, and we come to a chapter of great heartache to Abraham, chapter where he will lose his life partner. Sarah will be 127 years of age when she dies. Abraham will be 137 years of age. Isaac will be a relative boy, uh, just 37 years of age when he loses his mother. And Sarah will not see her son married. She'll not see her grandchildren. And God is going to take her out of this world in his own sovereign time. It says, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kirjath Arba. The same is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, and thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be in your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me to Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place among you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field, take it off me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, my Lord, hearken unto me, the land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which were therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure. Unto Abraham for a possession 
in the presence of the children of Heth, before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, the same as in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Amen. And God will add a blessing as always to the public reading of his word. Now, at one time or another, if you live long enough on this earth, you will have the painful experience of having to bury someone you love. In fact, I'm sure I can speak for most of us here that we've all had to bury many that we love and care about. So the subject of this chapter, how Abraham handles death in his home, is one that touches upon all our lives and our testimonies. And the Bible constantly reminds us that in life we are amongst death. King David said it this way. He says, there's but just a step between me and death. How long does it take to have a step? Just a second, isn't that right? Hearing of a man who gave his testimony recently in the church, and having finished his testimony, he came down and sat down, and he just turned his head and fell down dead in the chair. Just a step, just a moment. He was in the land of the living, one second, and in eternity, the next second. And the Bible repeats over and over again that our lives are in the hand of God. At a funeral recently for Sister Doris Turk, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and says in that chapter that there's a time to be born and a time to die. And going through all these couplets of sovereign appointments in the life of every individual, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says, God hath made all things beautiful in his time. He chooses when we come in and out of this world. And verse 2 of chapter 23 of Genesis gives us a very stark reminder that even amongst the godliest, the greatest of God's people, that death remains. And it begins with these words, and Sarah died. Very stark words, but very real words. And even the greatest of God's people are called to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes the wife goes first. More often than not, the husband goes first, but sometimes it's the wife. Sometimes it's the younger precedes the older. In this case, Sarah's just 127, and Abraham's already 137. Sometimes it happens unexpectedly when no doubt Sarah was looking forward to having seen her son married and grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. 
But that wasn't God's choice. Whereas Abraham will live to see his grandchildren, indeed a number of generations. And God gave that gift to him, but he chose not to give it to Sarah, and that's God's choice. And this stark language, and Sarah died, and this must have been a bitter blow to Abraham. We're not told how long they were married, but as she was a half-sister, maybe they'd known each other all their lives. Maybe they were close companions for many, many decades, maybe well over a hundred years. And Abraham feels the pain of this. In fact, he says in verse 4, when he talks to the sons of Heth, he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. There's a sense there, even in the language, that Abraham is grieving, feeling the loss of Sarah. And verse 2 tells us, and he came to mourn for Sarah, and notice these words, to weep for her. Well, this was a bitter This was a heavy blow that providence had brought upon Abraham. He wasn't just losing a wife, he was losing a companion. He was losing a spiritual help to him. And although Sarah had her imperfections, by and large, she was a good wife. Indeed, a great wife. And you say, well, how do you know that? Are you just... Someone once preached a sermon on lies that are told at funeral services, and there's an awful lot of lies told, isn't there, at funeral services. But in the case of Sarah, we know, not from the words of Abraham just, but from God, that this was a good woman. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, God says something interesting about this woman, Sarah. And I won't take time to read the whole section. But it begins with, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word of those outside the gospel, they also may without the word be won by the conversation. And the word conversation there means words and deeds the behavior of a Christian wife will speak to the unbelievers about Christianity. Sometimes we forget about these things. And it says in verse 5, just to jump ahead, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God. So those who were holy were women who trusted in God. That's what made them holy. adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So Sarah is held up by God himself as a role model, as an example of, of what a Christian wife should be. 
Now, she had her imperfections. But in the hundred-odd years that she knew Abraham, she was more good than bad. And her testimony was that God held her up and says, Look at Sarah. And you women who call yourselves Christians, you wives, he says, you walk in her footsteps. She was a woman to be admired, but also to be followed. Now, I can't give a higher testimony than that. That's not a preacher telling stories at a funeral. That's God speaking of Sarah and commending her. And Abraham, as he looked upon the earthly remains of his wife, no doubt he was grieving not just for the loss of a companion, but the loss of a godly woman, a woman of faith. We saw last week in Hebrews chapter 11 that she conceived Isaac by faith, the Bible says. She was a woman of faith. She was a woman of God. And death carries with it sorrow for those who are left behind. That's why it says in verse 2 of Genesis 23, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So it's not wrong to express the pain and the grief and the loss in death. You remember King David himself composed a song of grief over the passing of Saul and Jonathan particularly the loss of Jonathan, how he wept and how he mourned over the passing. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us the greatest example when he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, didn't he? The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says that we are to weep with them that weep. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's why, as Christians, if you are able to attend the wake, or a funeral service. Don't say, well, it doesn't suit me. It's an inconvenience. I have better things to do with my time. If you have the time and the opportunity, go and weep with those who weep. It's a great thing to do. And people notice, it was only when I was on the other side of a loss that you realize who came to the funeral. Isn't that right? It's amazing what comes back to your memory. Who was there and who wasn't there? And who sympathized with you and who didn't? And it's a great opportunity for Christians in particular to go to a person and be a blessing to that person and be a genuine friend to that person. I told you recently, John Weir made the observation to me uh, after all the years of preaching and listening to testimonies that very few people get saved when life is going well for them. Very few, if you ever listen to testimonies. The vast majority of them come to faith in a crisis, maybe a financial crisis, a health crisis. And one of the crises that they often makes them think about their souls is the death of a loved one, death of a parent, death of a sibling. And you may say, well, that person's really hard, but you'll be amazed what can talk to them at a moment when they're faced the reality of death in their home, a personal loss. And it's a great opportunity for you and I to go there and weep with those who weep and be a blessing to them and be a testimony to them. 
Now, death, of course, we don't just weep because of the loss of a person, but death is a very painful reminder to us personally of the consequence of our own sin. That the reason there is death came into this world was because of sin, and as sinners, we contribute to that. We are part of that great failure. But even at such a moment, as Christians, we don't go to sorrow, as Paul says, as those who have no hope. We do sorrow because there is a parting, albeit temporary, with other believers, but there is a parting. There is a loss. And often, the greater the person, the greater the loss. Isn't that right? The greater the bond, the greater the loss. And even as a church, when we lose people from this church, it's a loss to us. You can't replace good Christians. I can say that very bluntly. When you lose a prayer warrior, you might gain other prayer warriors, but you can never fully replace that person. We have plaques on the walls, even in this church, to people who labored here, and they've never been replaced. Never been replaced. And even people who come into here say, we miss so-and-so. And their influence and their example still lingers and is still a loss, even after all the years that have passed. And it's good to take time to mourn and reflect on that and even reflect on your own life and say, I wish when I see that person and going that I was like them, that their example spoke to me now. The more I think about it, I've wasted a whole chunk of my life pursuing things that mean nothing and hanging around with people who mean nothing. But then in verse 3 and 4, we learn something else about death. We learn that mourning has its place, but mourning must give way to other duties. And I don't mean to be harsh when I say this, but Sarah's race is over. She's now in her eternal rest. She's not coming back. And Abraham has to now deal with the practical consequences of her death and then get on with living the last leg of his race in a way that glorifies God and also honors the memory of Sarah. He's not to stay in the state of mourning. He's not to be a permanent widower or a permanent widow. He's now to rise up, and he has a son to live for. And we're going to see in the next chapter or so, he has duties to that son. He has to find a wife for that son. He has to ensure that the next generation are taught the word of God and live right. He can't just stay in a, in a cupboard or a room locked away and mourn forever. Abraham's very sensitive to that. And after he takes his time to mourn Sarah, and they've been 62 years now in Canaan. Abraham knows this is the time to deal with the funeral and the burial. And even as he prepares for all this, 
you'll discover that he does all things in a very orderly, in a very honourable, and a very God-glorifying way. And he first of all goes to those that are his neighbours. And no doubt there was a temptation to take Sarah's body back to where they grew up. Maybe to where his dad was buried in Haran. Or even to Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham no doubt would have had the financial means to do that. But Abraham knew that God had called him and his wife and his descendants to the land of Canaan. And it was to be their everlasting possession. And as he prepared for the funeral of Sarah, he was going to make sure that everybody knew that he believed in the promises of God, that there was going to be, number one, a resurrection for Sarah, and number two, that this was the land that God was going to give to Sarah and his descendants forever. And he didn't buy this land out of mere convenience. This land was to be bought really is almost like a first fruits, the first land of the Hebrew people, the first parcel of land they owned legally in the land of Canaan. And burial was going to be the means that Abraham was going to testify of his faith in God's promises of a future resurrection and a future possession of the land of the Jewish people. And he goes to these people and he says to them, he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he comes and asks. Now, he no doubt he was a powerful man. We know he had a mini army. When he rescued Lot, he had over 300 servants or so. He could have taken a piece of land by force. He certainly had the wealth to buy off anybody who would oppose him. Maybe, no doubt, his wealth had grown in those years. But Abraham knows he has to do this right. He has to honor God in this. We also know that he believed that there would be a future resurrection that Sarah and him would not be parted forever. You say, how does he know that? Is it just because he's a Christian or a believer? Yes, well, that's true, he did. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, listen to the words. It says, for he, speaking of Abraham, looked for a city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. He knew Sarah hadn't disappeared. Sarah hadn't been annihilated. He knew that Sarah was in glory. And one day, they would be reunited. One day, the dead would rise from the grave. And both of them would live with the Lord forever in their glorified bodies. And of course, all over the Old Testament, you'll see this. King David, for example, when that child died through the illegitimate relationship with Bathsheba, when he got right with God, he made this great statement. 
He says, I shall go to him. That's the departed child. But he says, he shall not return to me. I'm going to have a reunion with him in the next life. And Abraham certainly believed that as he came to negotiate over this piece of property. Now, remember these people that he's talking to are pagans, not believers. They don't believe necessarily in an afterlife. Many of them, no doubt, would have cremated on an altar the remains of departed relatives. But Abraham approaches them and he says, I want to buy from you a burial place for my dead. And you know, he had thought through the place because he asked for a specific place, a specific cave in that place for Sarah to be buried in. Now, this culture that they operate in is a little bit similar to ours, but there is differences. And it begins a kind of an Eastern way of bargaining. Abraham suggests what he would like to buy. And the people around Abraham hear what he has to say, and they said in verse 6, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince. I don't think that was an exaggeration. He was a great man. He's a mighty man. In fact, they call him a prince. He was a man of great respect. And they said, The choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. They says, Feel free, Abraham. Choose whatever land. No doubt there was mixed motives in their statements. Because everybody knew this was a wealthy man with a big checkbook. And you can do well if you could sell a piece of land to him. And he's able to stand behind anything he buys financially. No doubt they all knew that Abraham was an honourable man. An honest man. And if he says he's going to buy it from you, he'll buy it. He won't seize it off you. He won't steal it from you. And Abraham tells them the place and he's very humble. In fact, twice it says he bowed himself, verse 7 and verse 12. I like that about him. Even though he's a mighty man and a wealthy man, probably wealthier than all of them combined. Abraham is a man who's unafraid to show respect to those below him or perceived to be below him. Of course, that's very rare in the society that we live in, isn't it? Even Christians, when they get positions of authority and influence, they demand that everybody kowtows to them, but not Abraham. If you remember when the angels first came to Abraham's tent, do you remember? I think it's Genesis chapter 18. The Bible tells us what Abraham ran to greet them and invited them into his tent and offered them refreshments and then ordered Sarah to get the fatted calf prepared. And he went out of his way to show respect and kindness and grace and hospitality to strangers. 
And I suggested to you at the time when we looked at that, one of the reasons I think that he did that was because he saw an opportunity to be a testimony. Maybe he was hoping for an opportunity that he could talk to them about the Lord. He didn't know they were angels initially. But he was always on the lookout to be a blessing, to be gracious, to be hospitable, to be humble. He never lost that. He, even here at this time of grief, when sometimes manners can be forgotten about, oh, he's dignified and he's honorable and he's humble and he's gracious. And then this guy, Ephron, who's been listening, probably thinking to himself, he mentioned my name. Strut lucky here. He wants my cave, my field. And he comes with this Middle Eastern style of negotiation, verse 13. He says, he says, my Lord, verse 15, sorry, hearken unto me, the land is worth. No, I've jumped ahead of myself a little bit there. Verse 11. He says, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee, in the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee, bury thy dead. So he initially says, Ephron, you've been listening to this conversation, he says, you know, Abraham, feel free, silly earth. Now, from those who know the Middle Eastern culture, maybe they say, he wasn't really offering it for free, it was just a, a, a fake form of politeness. It was really a form of entering the negotiation. Oh, we want you to have it, you know. It's a gift. Uh, and Abraham, of course, understood that. And he said in verse 13, If thou wilt give it me, he wasn't presumptuous, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field, take it off me, and I will bury my dead. Abraham's very clear. Don't want any ambiguity. I want to buy this. And I want to pay money. I want to pay the proper money. No corruption here. No games here. And Ephron, of course, immediately picks up what Abraham has said. And he gives us verse 15. My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Well, if you really want a price. And, oh, 10,000 an acre. Well, 20 grand would buy it. It's worth 20,000. Uh, what is that, he says, betwixt me and thee? Since we're, we're don't want to fall out over this. Well, how's Abraham going to handle this? Will he counter-offer him? Will he say, that's too much? You're trying to take advantage of me in my grief. I'll go somewhere else. No, it says verse 16. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. In other words, Abraham, he says, is that the price? Okay. We're not going to have any funny business or arguments. And one of the things you'll discover as you study Abraham's life, indeed, 
many of the lives of the saints of God, they never get involved in funny business, do they? They never get involved in harsh negotiations and trying to take advantage of people, playing politics, playing games. Everything they do is upfront, is transparent, is honorable, is orderly. And Abraham's a man, as we look at his life, he never argued with Lot over money. He refused to argue with the people in Sodom over money or have anything to do with them. And even here, when no doubt these folk, and particularly this guy Ephron, he's trying to stick the arm in a bit, Abraham's not going to get involved. He says, pay the man the 400 shekels. And he does it openly before all. And he makes sure everybody can see what's going on. There's going to be no tales told of secret deals. Abraham's going to do this the right way. And he buys the piece of land for possession, the Bible says. And then he takes Sarah, the remains of Sarah, verse 19, and he buries her body, her remains, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre. The same is Hebron in the land of Canaan. This grieving patriarch is a model of decency, of dignity, and of honor. And just as we see him personally involved when the angels came, and we noted how he was personally involved, he didn't delegate it to other servants, so in the passing of Sarah and the negotiations over this burial place and the burial of Sarah, it's very evident Abraham's involved all every moment. He's not someone who just says this is not important. He, he wants everybody to know her death, her burial is very important to me and significant to me that is done well and done right. Now, this story has great significance to us in so many ways. And I say this in passing, don't fight over funerals. Don't fight over wills. Be a Christian. Rise above all those things. Don't get involved in times like that when emotions can break out and people can get all worked up. That's the way the world does. We as Christians were to conduct ourselves with dignity and honor and with a good testimony, with meekness. And the story has great significance because Moses wrote this account many years after it happened. And he wants everybody in the wilderness to know that their father, their great, 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 great ancestor, Abraham, bought the land of Canaan, bought that portion as a down payment, as a first fruits of the promise of God that one day the Jewish people would have that land and occupy that land as an everlasting possession. And not just Sarah was buried there, but Abraham was buried there later. Then Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah 
were all buried in that cave in Machpelah. And it's interesting today, if you go there, and I've been to the city of Hebron, it's a very volatile city. It's a very turbulent city. But Abraham's grave is still there. And every Friday, the Israeli army open the gates and the Muslims go to pray at the tomb of Abraham. And at the end of Friday, they're told, out. And every Saturday, the Jews go to pray at the tomb of Abraham. And even the Arabs and the Jews agree that this man was a great man. And he left a great legacy and was a great blessing to the world. In many ways, and with this I close, anyways, we all stand at the same point that Abraham stood that day. Because year by year, week by week, the dead just keeps being added to you, isn't it? And the graves are not yet full. And the graveyards keep expanding. And year by year, God's people die one by one. Still. And like Abraham, most of us will probably bury our dead and then be buried if the Lord doesn't return before that. And we will die and be buried like Abraham, like Sarah, having not fully received the fulfillment yet of the promises God made to all his people of a glorious resurrection. But like Abraham, we believe that the promises of God live on after we die to be fulfilled in the glorious resurrection to come. When we stand at the graveside of our loved ones who died in Christ, we sorrow, yes. We feel the loss, yes. But we must remind ourselves that when we stand there and we look into the grave, we're standing on resurrection ground. But one day, all of God's people will come up from the grave never to go back in the grave. And all because Jesus Christ conquered sin, death, and hell. Because he shall live also. That's the great story of the death and burial of both Sarah and then later Abraham and all the people of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for all the lessons we've learned from this chapter, and it's so full of meaning and instruction to us how to conduct ourselves in moments of loss and sorrow. We thank you for how Abraham handled all these things in a God-glorifying and honorable, dignified way. Help us to walk in his footsteps. For these things we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.